Hello, and welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly dose of rapid-fire board game reviews. This is Mike, and we have a wonderful episode for you. Mason starts us off this time with the new classic San Juan. I give you my winding history with viticulture. Ruth takes us exploring with Thebes. Stephanie runs us through agility, and Lindsay tells us how she got past the ick factor of Mirmes. Take it away, Mason. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about San Juan. San Juan, by designer Andreas Seyfarth, was released in 2004 by Ravensburger. If it came out today for the first time, it would probably be called Puerto Rico the Card Game. Puerto Rico was released two years earlier and is considered by many to be THE classic role selection game. Full disclosure, I've never actually played Puerto Rico, though I do own a copy of it. I should also point out that I will not be in any way discussing Race for the Galaxy in this segment, so don't even ask. Yes, I know they have some common roots and some similarities, but for me, they are radically different games that shouldn't even be talked about in the same discussion. Please don't DM me about it. I've played San Juan on the table, probably a dozen times or so, but I've played the digital versions, uh, both the official Robinsberger and the unofficial Condado app, hundreds of times. While the Robinsberger app uses the second edition rules, which I prefer, and looks quite pretty, uh, the minimal graphic Condado app, which is free, but Android only, is lightning fast and super minimalist, great if you already know how to play the game. So what is San Juan? San Juan is a tableau building, hand management, role selection game, and it's all cards. One of the things I really love about San Juan is its two-hemisphere balance of extremely high interaction and extremely low interaction to the point of being a solo game in your hand. Role selection each round is extremely high interaction. You're blocking other people by picking the thing you know they probably want to do. You're waiting until your turn comes around to grab the role that you want, but after that, the cards that you have don't really affect anyone else, and the cards that everyone else has don't really affect you in any way. Your hand and your tableau have their own internal closed economy. In San Juan, you're constantly being forced to choose between building up enough cards in your hand to pay for the really good card you're holding that will get you a lot of points, and racing against the other players to prevent being left behind on building your tableau before they do. Like a lot of tableau builders, the game clock is any one player completing 12 buildings, so some players may attempt to rush the game by building very low point buildings very rapidly to prevent you sitting on the higher value cards to build up some kind of scoring engine. Even if San Juan was only about producing goods on buildings, trading them in and then building more buildings to produce more goods, it would still be a pretty interesting game. But a lot of the magic in San Juan, for me, and one of the reasons I think it's firmly in the new classics category, are the purple buildings. I've realized now that I've gotten ahead of myself. There are two kinds of buildings in San Juan. Production buildings, indigo, coffee, sugar, silver, and tobacco. And when you build these buildings, on a later turn you can produce in the buildings as a way to get more cards. But the purple buildings each break some basic rule of the game in your favor. If you build the market hall, every time you sell a good, you get an extra card. If you build the quarry, every time you build a purple building, you pay one fewer card for it. There are also statues and monuments that cost a lot and don't really do anything, but they get you a significant number of points at the end of the game. Some of the most satisfying synergy in San Juan comes from the buildings that don't have victory points themselves at all, but that get you victory points at endgame based on the other things that you've built. Probably my favorite card is the chapel, which allows you to slip one card underneath it at the beginning of every turn, and then count all those cards up for points at the end of the game. Some of the most overwhelming victories in games I've played, both by me and against me, have come from building the chapel early and aggressively producing cards and sticking them under it. So which version of San Juan should you buy? There's the original 2004 version, and it's just fine. If you can find a copy in pretty decent shape for under about $10 used, it's probably worth you buying. The 2014 version, also known as San Juan 2nd Edition, 
has updated art, a more readable layout and graphic design, and it contains all of the expansion cards. But maybe most importantly, it contains some very simple rules tweaks that I would suggest using even if you play with the original version of San Juan. I would suggest not even considering playing with the new buildings and events expansion that came along with the second edition until you've played a few dozen games of the base cards to really understand the relationship between role selection, hand management, and production. One of the things I love most about San Juan, and one of the other reasons I think it's really deserving of the new Classics label, is that I can teach someone San Juan in about five minutes, and after a single game, those people can easily play against other non-competitive players. They might not win, but they at least know how to play. There's so much replayability in San Juan, and so much of that replayability lies in the people you're playing it with, that I think the value over the life of the game is incredibly high. The second edition is currently about $25, and over its life I could easily see 100 plus plays in your collection. So who should buy San Juan? People who like card games. People who like doing their own thing in their own space that other people can't mess with. People who aren't particularly bothered or can ignore some of the unpleasant colonialist underpinnings of the theme, or at least acknowledge them and have a discussion about them and then move on. People who like the tension between developing a long-game economic superiority strategy and trying to keep pace with your opponent's tableau building. And people who like paying to build cards with the other cards in their hand. I give San Juan 11 out of 12 governor's mansions built from the proceeds of ill-gotten indigo plantations. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Hello, it's Mike. I apologize for the voice today. A cold has me a bit off. But I hope you'll bear with me as I want to tell you about Viticulture. Viticulture is the game that I have spent the most time and effort trying to like, by far. When I first saw the game being played, I knew I had to have it. The theme really grabbed me. Not that I want to run a vineyard or winery. This podcast farmer quota has thankfully been filled by Mason. But because I enjoy learning about winemaking and would like nothing more than to spend an evening with friends working my way through a tasting of, say, Sauvignon Blancs from all over the world and discussing the different flavors. This was also my first exposure to the luscious art of Beth Sobel, and that was just the icing on the cake. So I rushed out and got a copy and played it. In Viticulture, you're trying to grow your winery by obtaining vine cards, planting them in your fields, harvesting the grapes, making wine, and fulfilling contracts from your hand. It was one of the first worker placement games I'd played, and the theme carried through as well as I'd hoped. From the start, you were using your rooster meeple to pick your starting position that round, with later positions being rewarded with more bonuses. The actions you can take are broken into summer actions and winter actions, with actions fitting their correct season. Summer actions come first, but you don't get your workers back until the year is over, so be sure to think ahead and save some for winter. Obtaining vine cards, planting them in your fields, building structures, giving tours, and selling grapes all happen in the summer. The buildings you build on your player board get bonuses when you take certain actions, let you take specific actions on your own board so you can't be blocked, fulfill requirements for specific types of grapes, and expand your winery so you can make better or more kinds of wine. Come winter, you are harvesting your fields to put the grapes on the crush pads, turning those grapes into wine in your cellar, and using that wine to fulfill contracts. Contracts are generally the main way to get points, but they also give you recurring income. It seems winter is also the prime time for training new workers. The most interesting actions are the play, summer, and winter visitor spots. These visitor cards give you one-time actions that often let you break the rules in some way. Some let you build buildings for cheaper or even free, plant grapes, train your workers for cheaper, give victory points, or countless other options. They are, to me, the most fun part of the game. But in the end, my first plays felt just sort of okay to me. The luck of the draw really bothered me, and the visitors were really mixed on usefulness. That you could waste a whole action to draw a vine or visitor card that you couldn't use was brutal. 
but I really wanted to make this work. So after reading some more, I determined that what I needed were the advanced visitors in the Tuscany expansion. And I have to say that adding those in made it much better. But now I had this big expansion box. What else is in there? Turns out a lot of good things, including the Altoma deck for solo play, and an extended board that made the game less tight. But also some stuff that really fell flat for me. Which is fine, but now I'm bringing two boxes to game night and ignoring a lot in the second box. Then last year Jamie Stegmeyer announced Viticulture Essential Edition. And while skeptical, I took a look because he touted it as the new official version as redone by himself and Uwe Rosenberg, which naturally piqued my interest. This version had a slightly modified base game with the updated visitor cards, plus my favorite parts from the Tuscany expansion. The Mama and Papa cards give you a variable setup for each player. The field cards, which you can sell for money and then buy back to expand your winery, and the Automa cards for solo play, all in the new Essentials base box. So I sold my original edition and pre-ordered the Essential edition, and I have not regretted that decision in the least. The worker placement is still tight and the card draw is a little more random than I would like, but this is the version of the game that I wanted from day one. So much so that when Tuscany Essential Edition was announced, I didn't even look at it. But I know some friends who got it, and they said I really should try it, reminding me of the expanded board. The special workers and structures were two options from the original Tuscany I hadn't tried. I've tried them once now and they are good as well. Maybe I'll cover them and the extended board in more detail another time, when I've had more plays. But overall I'm very pleased with these additions. Thank you Stonemeyer Games for making Viticulture Essential Edition available. Now to just add in the more visitors. Thanks for listening despite my terrible voice. If you made it this far and wish to reach me, you can find me on Twitter at Mike Risley. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and today I wanted to talk about an older game I absolutely adore, and have been really happy to see become available again thanks to a recent reprint. The game in question is Thebes by Peter Prince, first published by Queen Games in 2007, although it's actually a pretty loyal imagining of Jensitz von Themen, which Prince released in a small run in 2004. Thebes is a game that puts two to four players into the role of archaeologists at the turn of the 20th century. The game is played over the span of three years, from the beginning of 1901 through to the end of 1903, and during that time each player is trying to gain the most fame, fortune, and prestige by finding valuable artifacts, displaying those artifacts in the world's museums, and of course by hitting up the lecture circuit to talk about their exploits. But it's pretty hard to find the most valuable artifacts at a particular dig site if you don't know anything about the civilization you're excavating, so players also need to spend time gathering knowledge, research assistance, and equipment to help increase their chances of finding the best stuff. Thebes is a game about managing time. It was the first game I played to feature a time track for turn order, where actions move you forward a certain amount of time and the current player is the player furthest back. And it's a concept I tend to really enjoy as it leads to interesting decisions. Players have to weigh up whether an attractive play is attractive enough for the amount of time it takes. The track around the board represents a year divided into 52 weeks. And so in a player's turn, they will determine where they need to be, move their archaeologist, which takes a week of travel time per hop, and then add the amount of weeks required to actually take their turn. This means a cheaper two-week knowledge card suddenly becomes a much more expensive proposition when you need to travel four weeks to Moscow to find that knowledge, and suddenly a player has to figure out just how much they need to know about Egypt before they start digging. And digging is where things get really interesting. There are five possible dig sites in the game, and players have permits letting them excavate at each site once per year. But they also need to collect specialized knowledge specific to each site before they can dig there. And since the more knowledge a player has to use, the better they can dig, it can be tough to decide when to stop learning and start putting your knowledge into practice. 
especially as the more excavations there are at a particular location, the more picked over it gets, making it important to get there before everyone else has grabbed all of the good stuff. So once a player decides to dig, that's when the two greatest components in Thebes come into play. Firstly, each dig site is represented by an extremely attractive drawback, screened with an image of the site and bordered in separate fabric of the color associated with that location. Inside each bag are 12 punchboard discs representing artifacts. These range in value from 1 to either 5, 6, or 7, depending on the location. And also, the bag has two more discs representing valuable knowledge, either general knowledge that can be applied to any site, or information specific to one of the other locations. In addition to these 14 valuable discs, each bag has 16 more discs that represent dirt, or sand. And after every excavation, the current player will take everything valuable they've found, and then return all of the dirt to the bag, worsening the odds for everyone behind them. The second favorite component is brought out before each dig. Each player gets a cardboard dial that spins beautifully and is a constant source of interest for new players who want to know how often they'll get to use it. And when a player decides to dig, they'll turn this dial so that the amount of knowledge that they've collected is displayed at the top. The rest of the window shows the number of discs that they'll get to pull depending on how many weeks they choose to commit. Do you spend just a couple of weeks, or do you choose to stay at a site for 10 or 12 valuable weeks and hope that you'll gather enough artifacts to consider that site pretty much finished and concentrate elsewhere? Thebes is a game that at its heart has a lot of luck. Will the card you need show up where you need it? Will the right exhibition show up for the artifacts you've collected? And will you draw anything other than dirt from the bag? Yet I've played the game with people who say they hate luck, but still enjoy Thebes. Perhaps it's because everything just works so well with the theme, or maybe it's just that the game is so damn charming, but the high degree of luck just fits. It's also relatively quick playing, which helps make that luck factor more palatable to those who profess to dislike randomness. It's a game that tends to get everyone at the table involved, as they excitedly watch to see what the active player will pull, and in our games at least, it's inspired some of my gaming opponents to create Thebes-themed songs to sing. They'll sing these while others rummage in the bags in an effort to summon up bad luck for the competition. Most often, this involves simply singing the word dirt repeatedly to the tune from Monty Python's infamous spam sketch, but occasionally they've gotten more creative with sand or dirt-themed versions of classic rock songs. This has made Thebes a game that creates great memories, whether it's the songs or just the infamously bad digs, and it's a mainstay of my collection that won't be leaving anytime soon. The superb integration of theme has also made it a good game for newer gamers, as all the actions they take make sense in terms of the theme, and so once they've grasped the shifting turn order, the rest of the game goes smoothly. I highly recommend checking out this classic. And while I can't guarantee your games of Thebes will feature the type of soundtrack mine tend to, even without the singing, it's still an awful lot of fun to go digging around in the sand. So until next time, I'm going to be forcing everyone around me to play the Stefanfeld race game I'll be discussing next episode. You can reach me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and then an F. Thanks for listening. Full disclosure... I'm a sucker for cute games. Does it have adorable artwork or some cute component? Yes, please. And when the subject matter of the game is something not often explored, like plants or pie or furry friends, sign me up. I mean, honestly, 
this extends beyond my gaming affinity. Like last week, I passed by a dog with bows in its ears and I asked the pup, did you just get a haircut? The dog. I asked the dog if she just got a haircut. So you can probably guess my reaction for the game agility. For the record, it was somewhere in the uncontrollable giddiness category. See, agility is a game about adopting and training agility dogs. Let that sink in for a moment. A game about agility dogs. In this light two-player game by Brent Povis and featuring artwork by Vince Dorsey, players are trying to be the first to race their canine crew over hurdles, through tunnels, and in between weave poles. I do want to take this moment to give a huge shout out to Brent Povis with Two Lantern Games, who is absolutely killing it on the two-player front. I could go on and on about my love for his other title, Morels, but we'll save that for a later review. On the surface, agility is a resource management game. Players draft cards that they play to collect resources that they later spend to adopt a dog or further one of their pups through a specific agility course. You know, basic enough. But it's the addition of the action board in this game that really kicks gameplay up a notch or two. When you play one of the cards in your hand, not only do you collect from your choice of indicated resources, but you also move around a 10-space action board. The number of spaces you move is equal to the number printed on the card you just played. The space you land on dictates what action you can take, which could be supremely helpful to you, like drafting extra resources or clearing one of the obstacles for free. Or it could give a disadvantage to your opponent, like forcing them to complete their obstacles in a specific order or knocking their hand size down by one. This also introduces a fun bit of take thatness, since you might be planning the perfect play and your opponent moves the marker to a space you weren't expecting them to, and you have to rethink your whole plan for your upcoming turn. What makes the action board the best part of agility is the infinite ways to configure it. With the exception of the action in the starting space, all of the actions on the board are variable, both in the order they appear and in which ones are used. There are 13 possible actions that can be put on one of those other nine spaces, which allows for amazing replayability and as a means for bumping the difficulty a bit. In the rules book, there is a balance suggested setup, but we've taken to just putting all the actions in a cup and drawing and placing them at random. Look, I'm not going to lie. I probably would have played this game for the dog-shaped meeples alone, but what could easily be seen as just another filler game really breaks out of that category for me and fills the need when I'm looking for something with some decent strategy that I can play in under an hour. Retailing for about $25, Agility from Two Lanterns Games is a must-have for your two-player game collection. This has been Stephanie Stone Rob for 5 by Games, and until next time, stay playful. Hello, it's Lindsay here, and this episode I'm going to talk about Mermaids, designed by Johan Levet and published by Astari and Rio Grande Games in 2012. I first played this 2-4 player ant colony themed worker placement game a few years ago. The initial game fell so flat for me that it sat unplayed on the shelf until last year. 
when I had an overwhelming sense of guilt that perhaps I didn't give it the chance it deserved. I suggested giving it another try and I was so glad I did. Upon my second and subsequent games I come to appreciate just what a decent game this is. Ants workers by nature and this is the ultimate worker placement game I feel. So why didn't I like my first game of mermaids? Well I think the thing was all wrong for me to begin with. I have an irrational fear of insects. I'm not completely a phobic perhaps but I'm definitely not a fan. And again, I think this stems from Indiana Jones. You know the scene in Temple of Doom with the insects in the catacombs? It freaked me out for years. I watched a lot of Indiana Jones when I was little, but I promise I will stop bringing it up now because it's going to get weird. Mermaids has this really pretty and colourful cover-up where these chubby ants trekking through the undergrowth and mushrooms and sunshine that leads you to believe it's quite a cutesy, perhaps a light game, when in fact it's not at all. And I'd done enough research to know this before playing. Being an ant is serious business. The game itself is decidedly uncutesy. We have plastic ant components that every time I handled I felt a vague sense of unease. I wasn't too happy about the spider and wasp tokens either, and I actually shuddered at some of the terminology. Like nests, eggs, scavenging, larvae. It was a whole world of ugh. I know at this point I'm absolutely not selling it, but I think the fact that I could get past my nonsense and actually enjoy the cleverness of the game is a testament to how good the game actually is. So this game is 100% work placement. You have four years or rounds consisting of three seasons. You roll three dice for each season that determine what the event will be each round. Events such as receiving additional eggs or workers, the ability to take three extra resources, or moving extra space on the board, but only if that relates to one of the actions you choose to take on that round. You allocate your nurses or cylinders in order to make eggs, breed worker or fighter ants, improve your colony, make additional nurses or take a bonus action to score an objective tile. You score your points by laying pheromone trails on the board, the hexagonal tiles of different sizes, killing prey, the ladybirds and wasps, and spiders, and meeting objectives. Improving your colony will increase the opportunities for laying larger pheromones or special pheromones that give you a resource each turn, and storing more food, earth and stone. It's a simple, most points on the scoreboard win system with no end of game bonuses which actually makes me a little sad. I do love getting a few extras at the end. And I don't really like it when a game just is abruptly over and it's like, that's it, that's your lot sort of thing. There are so many options and routes to take that Mermaids is just a real brain burner of a game. You need to plan ahead and have absolute concentration to win and it's really tough. It's the kind of game that you can definitely master but you need to play it often to do so. Every time I play this game after a long period of time, I literally have to relearn the best strategy to take again. I found that making lots of eggs and nurses as soon as you can and increasing your storage space as soon as possible can really give you a good start. It can be a bit of a mean game when space on the board becomes limited and you're fighting for territory or cleaning up another player's pheromone, which means removing it and laying your own in its place. You can also clean up your own pheromone to rescore the points it gives you, but you need earth to do this. Your ants can only emerge on the ball from a tunnel, so it's a good idea to get one out in your opponent's area quite early on in the game. And I like what you can do with the event track. As I mentioned earlier, the season dice determine the event, but you can use your eggs to manipulate this to suit your strategy, but only if you have the eggs to do so. And this is the real focus of mermaids, you have to acquire resources in order to do everything, and you need the workers and fighters for most actions, and you always seem to have a limited amount of these things. And what bothers me is the lack of time. I think there's often a sense in worker placement games of just not having enough time to do what you need or want to do. And this is all the more apparent in Mermaids. I just thought it could use one more season to make it even slightly more achievable. 
The feeding the colony part really grates on me. With so many more interesting things you want to do, ensuring you have food and storage space can get a bit of a drag. But therein lies the toughness of the game, I think, because you're faced with those decisions. And that's how I grew to love mermaids. Because despite my niggles with it, I've had games where my plans have come to fruition and I've cracked it. And I can't deny that it's a brilliant design. So thank you very much for listening. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube and Facebook as Shiny Happy Meeples. Twitter as capital S, capital H, Meeples. Or shinyhackmeeplesblog.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Five By. If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash Five By Games. Join our BGG Guild at number twenty-eight ten. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or just follow all the links you can find on FiveByGames.com.